Are you thinking about getting into Dungeons & Dragons? Maybe you're looking to expand your horizons as a DM or a player. If that's the case, then it's time for you to check out The Dungeon Cast, the best D&D podcast out there that helps you passively learn all about the game just by listening. Join co-hosts Will and Brian as they break down the lore of a rich multiverse 50 years in the making in a lighthearted and beginner-friendly way. They cover everything from character creation options to tips for dungeon masters. There's something for everyone, no matter how long you've been playing TTRPGs. Find The Dungeon Cast anywhere you get podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we're talking about underappreciated women in history. So grab your girl power. And let's get civical. Hi, 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 hello. Hi. I'm literally about to burst out of my chair. I'm Are you so, so excited? excited. I'm We're gonna, so excited. I, this is going to be fun. You guys, don't you know it's International Women's Day today, but also month? Month? It's, yes. And so, and so. Ladies. Ladies, raise your hands. Uh, Art and I decided that we were going to take this episode today to just give some space Two really cool women in, did you just do history or did you do also like U.S. history or like global history? I did like women, prominent women in like civics and politics, but just America. Just America. Okay, great. Yeah. Mine are also just America. So there's only actually there's there. I have one that's in like the civics thing but they all it all great it's all in the Love realm it. of what we talk about on let's get civical but this is like cool women in history in u.s history that we don't really talk about as much like yeah. some of you may have heard of them yeah but like this is not the person who you're like opening your textbook and being like i'm gonna crush up my pa yeah these are like women that like don't get the space they deserve. Yep. So I've picked four women. Arden has picked four women. I don't know what Arden's women nope. are. And Arden doesn't know what my women are. Nope. And so you're literally about to hear us tell each other about these women. And I'm so excited. No. I wish we had wine. I know. We should have We should have had a drink. It's fine. It's fine. We're fine. We can ladies. be sober. <laughs> okay. Well, who do you want to go? Do you want to go first? You go first. Okay. You go first. Okay. I'll go first. Oh, my God. So my first... It's actually not one person, but it's a group of people. I know I kind of broke the rules. When I discovered them, I was like, it's over. So this this group of women are called the wasps. Have you ever heard of them? <laughs> yes. You know what the wasps are? Yes. I love them. So listeners, I would tell you about the wasps. So all of this comes from Susan Stamberg at NPR and the wasp'smuseum.org. Oh what God. I'm about to read you is from the wasp museum. Oh, my God. So. In 1942, as the country reeled from the attack on Pearl Harbor, trained male pilots were in short supply. Qualified pilots were needed to fight the war. The Army also was desperate for pilots to deliver newly built trainer aircrafts to the flight schools in the South. 28 experienced civilian women pilots volunteered to take those ferrying jobs. They formed the country's first female squadron. Stop it. Late summer in 1942. That's so hot. I know. So between 19, November 1942 and December 1944, 1,074 more women were trained to fly first in Houston <laughs> Ooh. and then moved to Avenger Field in Sweetwater, Texas. Nancy Love and Jacqueline Cochran founded the two programs, the which were basically two programs that became the WASPs. So WASPs flew every aircraft in the Army's arsenal. In addition to ferrying, they towed gunnery targets, yes. transported equipment and non-flying personnel, and flight-tested aircrafts that had been repaired before the men were allowed to fly them again. Uh, so they're literally making sure that these 
planes are actually broken. Fucking guinea pigs. I know. So for over two years, the Wasp went on to perform a wide variety of aviation-related jobs and to serve at more than 120 bases around the country. The man who championed the Wasps was Army Air Force Commanding General Hap Arnold. Oh, my God. Great name. He was revered by U.S. Congress, but in June 1944, when he sought to officially designate the Wasps as members of the United States military, Congress said no. Fuck you. Mm -hmm. You're going to die. So f- more than three decades later on September, tw- this is all from the waspistorymuseum.org. It's amazing. More Where is three- the waspistorymuseum history museum? It's in Sweetwater, Texas. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. So amazing. Okay. So more than three decades, li- decades later on September 20th, 1977, a select house subcommittee on veterans affair of Veterans Affairs heard testimony on H.R. 3277, a bill which recognized WASP service as active duty in the armed forces <gasps> and entitled them to veterans yes, benefits. Uh, so they didn't get any benefits between 1944 and 1977. Congress was like, oh, they're not active military, even though they are flying military airplanes. Fuck you. Okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. It was strongly supported by both houses of Congress and Senator Barry Goldwater, who had flown oh. with the Wasps during World War II. He led the move to get the bill passed. Yes. The bill was vehemently opposed by the American Legion on the grounds that it would, quote, denigrate the term veteran. Fuck so th- you. Mm-hmm, so that it would never again have the value that presently, presently attaches to it. Controversies went back and forth with the Veterans Administration opposing the bill and the Department of Defense supporting it. Goldwater attached the bill as an amendment to the GI Bill Improvement Act in October of 1977. But the committee chairs had planned to strip the WASP amendment during the reconciliation process. This prompted two women representatives of the House, Representative Margaret Heckler and Representative Liddy Boggs, to take action in support of the WASP amendment. A compromise was finally reached that if the Air Force would certify the WASP had been de facto military personnel during the war, the WASP amendment would not be stripped. The Air Force certified the WASPs and in making their determination, used the discharge paper of WASP Helen Porter in 1944, which read, quote, this is to certify that Helen Porter honored, uh, she was one of the wasps, honor, I can't say the word honorably, 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 yeah. honorably served in active federal service of the Army of the United States, end quote. It was the same word used in 1944 for all honorable discharges from the Army. As amended, it passed the House with unanimous consent and President Jimmy Carter yes! signed yes! the bill into law yes! on November 23rd, 1977. Oh, my God, he's such a good fucking he's human such a good being. Human. I know. That was like, we were gearing out to be like, when I, I mean, this whole story is crazy. There's, there's, there's something you said in there that you are not going to believe. What? Is connected to one of my people. Okay, I can't wait. And don't I, say it. I'm don't not going to tell but you. But I love this. Yep. We did not coordinate no, this at all. No, we didn't coordinate this at all. Um, so that's that's my story in the Wasp. The only thing I will amend to that is in, pres- uh, in 2009, President Obama signed a bill awarding the Wasps the cor- Congressional Gold Medal, which is the highest congressional medal available. Oh, my God. Your turn. Oh, my God. I wasn't going to start with this person. Uh, but now you feel but like now you have I to. But now I have to. Okay, I love it. Okay. My first person is somebody that I grew up watching. Okay. It's Cokie Roberts. I don't know who this is. You know who Cokie Roberts is? No. <gasps> oh my God, okay. Okay, have fun. Okay, Cokie Roberts is like an award-winning, uh, she's got Emmys, she's in the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. Love she's it. got the Edward R. Murrow Award. She's a journalist, uh, if you couldn't tell by the, her the accolades. Sure. So she joined, what was it at the time, a startup. I love that. Uh, NPR. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Startup NPR. She joined in 1978. And I should say this is all coming from a really wonderful article that that, uh, NPR journalist Bobby Allen and Scott Newman wrote about her after her death. Okay. So she started at NPR in 1978 when it was like a baby little institution. Yep. And she really helped them 
like she was a huge part of the network and and her coverage contributed to like their growth and credibility as an organization. Um, she covered Washington politics for them and served as their congressional correspondent for more than 10 years. Love that. Yes, queen. Yeah. So then she left NPR in 1988 to become a political correspondent for ABC uh, ABC's World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, which is like when I... Not in 88, obviously I was three, but like her time as on World News Tonight was how I grew up watching her. Love. But she still kept her part-time gig at NPR. Love. (laughs) Uh, Yes, queen. Until her death. They were like, you keep going, Koki. I love that. You can have have a column. You can have a column. You can have whatever you want. She was the best-selling author and she's an Emmy Award winner. Roberts was one of NPR's most recognizable voices and is considered one of a handful of pioneering female journalists. She okay. Here's okay. Here we go. See if you can spot it. Okay. Okay. Here comes. Here comes the link. I'm. I'm ready. So Roberts is the daughter of former U.S. representatives. She grew up walking the halls of Congress and absorbing the personalities. Like, could you imagine just, like, just yeah. being like a little kid? Let being me absorb like, the personalities. Like, What's up? <laughs> like what? So she grew up walking the halls of Congress with her parents. Sure. Were both parents in there or just mm-hmm. one? Wow. Okay. Hot. Yeah. So her birth name is Mary Martha Corinne Morrison Claiborne Boggs. <gasps> uh-huh. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Liddy. Yep. Liddy. So she was given the name Koki by her brother, Thomas, who had trouble pronouncing Corinne. Sure. And then it just stuck into yeah. her. Koki. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Her father was Thomas Hale Boggs Sr., a former Democratic majority leader of the House who served in Congress for more than three decades before he disappeared on a campaign campaign flight in Alaska. Like, just gone forever? In 1972. Literally, all NPR wrote about that. That was the only sentence. Where did he go? We're going to circle back and do an update on that. I want to know. because I I assume he was presumed dead? Yes. But literally, the, the, the fact that the whole sentence is... Her father was a congressperson and then his plane disappeared. Not like it was downed. We found the plane (laughs) all dead, just disappeared. Yeah, I hate planes. I hate planes because you can just disappear. You can just disappear. So her father disappeared on a campaign flight in Alaska in 1972. Her mother, Lindy Claiborne Boggs, took her husband's seat and served for 17 years. Love. That's our connection. Liddy. Thank you, Liddy. That's amazing. Yeah. When you were like Liddy Boggs, I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is. Thanks, Liddy. We're one mind. We're one mind. She also served, Lindy also served as the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican. Oh. So that was super interesting. Bless. Cookie Roberts is the only member of her immediate family not to run for Congress. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> Did disappointment. You like, the ba- like the black sheep. Right. At Thanksgiving. Like, like yeah. <laughs> but Cookie Roberts considered her role as a journalist and political analyst, uh, analyst as her way of like giving back and contributing. Yeah. I to mean, that. she's not, obviously. not in the world. She's not, not in the political world. Obviously, that's her life's her metier. She won, Cookie Roberts won numerous awards during her long career in journalism, including three Emmys, the Edward R. Murrow Award. She was inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. Love. And she was recognized by the American Women in Radio and Television as one of the 50 greatest women in the history of broadcasting. Yes. Cookie Roberts. Oh my God, Cookie Roberts. I love Cookie Roberts. I love that. I was, that was one of those, like, you know, where you get the alerts on your phone that so-and-so has died. Yeah. That was one of those that I was I like, you. oh man. Yeah. It's love a Cookie Roberts. Okay. I don't know if we can keep this going. <laughs> this like connection between people. That is super I, look, amazing. My next one is completely different. Great. I all of them are completely different. Great. Okay. So my next one is Fanny Lou Hammer. And so this is all coming from the Women's National History Museum uh, and Deborah Michaels, who edited this uh, piece. It's such a great website. The National History. What? Do you have Fanny Lou? No, but I have somebody who she who the person who wrote your material wrote yours wrote material for somebody that okay, I did. Michaels, <laughs> shout out to Deborah. <laughs> Look, we have similar interests. Okay, this is Fanny Lou Hammer. So Hammer was born on October 6, nineteen seventeen, in Montgomery County, Mississippi. The 20th and last child of sharecroppers, Lou Ella and James Townsend. She grew up in poverty, and at age six, Hammer joined her family picking cotton. By age 12, she left school to work. In 1944, she married Perry Hammer, and the 
The couple toiled on the Mississippi plantation owned by B.D. Marlowe until 1962. So, so this is sort of background information about her. This is like, yeah, it all comes to a head. So in 1961, Hammer received a hysterectomy by a white doctor without her consent <gasps> while undergoing surgery to remove a uterine tumor. Such forced sterilization of black women as a way to reduce black population was so widespread that it was dubbed a Mississippi appendectomy. <gasps> I know. Yeah. That's so that summer, the summer of 1961, Hammer attended a meeting led by civil rights activist James Foreman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or the SNCC, and James Bevel of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. Hammer was incensed by efforts to deny blacks the right to vote. She became an SNCC organizer and on August 31st, 1962, led 17 volunteers to register to vote at the Indianola, Mississippi courthouse. Denied the right to vote due to an unfair literacy test, the group was harassed on their way home when police stopped their bus and fined them $100 for a trumped up charge that the bus was too yellow. What? I know. I know. Jesus Christ. In June of 1963, after successfully registering to vote, Hammer and several other black women were arrested for sitting in a whites-only bus station restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina. At the jailhouse, she and several of the women were brutally beaten, leaving Hammer with a lifelong injury from a blood clot in her eye, kidney damage, and leg damage. So in 1964... Hammer's national reputation soared as she co-founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, mm. which challenged the local Democratic Party's effort to block black participation. Hammer and other MFDP members went to the Democratic National Convention that year, arguing to be recognized as the official delegation. When Hammer spoke before the Credentials Committee, calling for a mandatory, mandatory integrated states delegations, President Lyndon Johnson held a televised press conference so she would not get any television airtime. <gasps> mm -hmm. He was so afraid of her. Wow. But her speech, with its poignant description of racial prejudice in the South, was televised later. By 1968, Hammer's vision for a racial party and delegations had become a reality, and Hammer was a member of Mississippi's first integrated delegation. Wow. Hammer... Victoria Gray and Anne Devine became the first black women to stand in the U.S. Congress when they unsuccessfully protested a Mississippi House election. Mm. Um, then in 1971, Hammer helped found the National Women's Political Caucus. Wow. Yeah. And so this is other sort of fun facts. Frustrated by the political process, Hammer turned to economics as a strategy for greater racial equality. Uh, in 1968, she began a pig bank to provide free pigs for black farmers to breed, raise, and slaughter. A year later, she launched the Freedom Farm Cooperative, buying up land so that blacks could own and farm collectively. Love that. I know. With the assistance of donors, she purchased 640 acres and launched a co-op store, boutique, and sewing enterprise. She single-handedly ensured that 200 units of low-income housing were built. Many still exist today. The FFC, or the Freedom Farm Cooperative, lasted until the mid-1970s. At its heyday, it was among the largest employers in the Sunflower County. And then in 1977, Hammer died of breast cancer at the age of 59. But she's oh, like God, credited so as like when you talk about people who suffrage movements, yeah. and especially like, you know, feminist suffrage move like yeah. people. Fannie Lou Hammer is like often left off the list. But she was like insert like she was one of the first women to do first black women to do so many things. Yeah. And like and like really pioneered what is effectively what we now call micro grants. Yeah. Like, I don't know that she invented them. I don't know the history of micro grants, no, but, but she that's did what it she was doing as a black woman, as a black in, woman in the South yeah. was effectively putting to purpose micro grants for the betterment of the community. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Love Fannie Lou. Wow. Great. Well, we're going to do my compliment to that. Okay. Great. Okay, great. <laughs> Which I'm sure you've heard of this person. I just... I felt like I, I had heard of her, yeah, and I didn't 
know as much as I should about her. Yeah. Even I love it. That's she's what defi- this is about. She's definitely somebody who's talked about, but not. We're giving space. But not enough. So we're giving space. This is also, this is the link for this one, coming from the National Women's History Museum uh, with information written by Deborah Michaels. Okay, thank you, Deborah Michaels. Oh my goodness. Hi. So I'm going to talk about Shirley Chisholm. <gasps> okay, yeah. amazing. Yes, yeah. Shirley. So Shirley Anita St. Hill Chisholm was the first African-American woman in Congress and the first woman in African-American to seek the nomination for president of the United States from one of the two major political parties. Yeah. So she was born in Brooklyn, New York on November. Hey, hey ho. On November 30th, 1924. She was the oldest of four daughters to immigrant parents, Charles St. Hill, who was a factory worker from Guyana, and Ruby Seal St. Hill, who was a seamstress from Barbados. Love. Shirley graduated from Brooklyn College, where her professors encouraged her to get into politics, but she considered herself to have, quote, a double handicap being both black and female. Yeah. So she, after graduating from Brooklyn College, she worked in a nursery school and then went on to get her master's in early childhood education from Columbia. Mm-hmm. Even though she had like pushed the political stuff away, she did start to get involved in local clubs, which mm-hmm. is like like her trajectory is like start local people, start local and work your way up. And she, I mean, her biography is amazing, and you know, obviously. So she was she got her master's from Columbia. She got involved with the League of Women Voters, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, the Urban League, and the Democratic Party Club in Bed-Stuy. Hey, 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 hey. in Brooklyn. I love that. Yeah. So she was like, I'm going to She was like, I know I said no. I'm going to go all I'm in on go this. To clubs I'm going to need to like get involved with her. Yeah. Yeah. So then in 1964, Chisholm ran for and became the second African-American in the New York state legislature. Yes. Love it. And then in 1968, she ran for and won her seat in Congress. Yeah, she did. The yes, she did. First black woman in Congress. Thank in you. 1968. 1968. That is, that is like literally the same time that Fannie Lou Hammer stuff is going down. Yeah. You know? Then okay, so then uh, she was fighting Shirley as they as she was that called. was her that was her nickname her nickname. She introduced more than fifty pieces of legislation in Congress and championed racial and gender equality, the plight of the poor, and ending the Vietnam War. All Thanks, good things. Yes. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you, Shirley. She was a co-founder of the National Women's Political Caucus in 1971 and in 1977 became the first black woman and second woman ever to serve on the powerful House Rules Committee. Nice. Yeah. Oh, she's so cool. She's so cool. In 1972, she ran for the Democratic Party presidential nomination. Ran into some speed bumps, much like our friend Fanny. Oh, sure. I imagine. Um, She was blocked from participating in televised primary debates. Yep. And after taking legal action, was permitted to make just one speech like Jesus. It's the same story. It's the same story. Like Jesus? (laughs) No. Oh. (laughs) I'm literally thinking like, when did Jesus give a speech? (laughs) Oh, did you miss televised on so CNN sorry, the other night? So they sorry. Let him, no, okay. it, the same. Yes, it's just yes, like yes, the yes. parallels of yeah. their stories. Yeah. So yeah, so she was blocked from participating in televised primary debates and after taking legal action was permitted to make just one speech. Still, students, women, and minorities followed the Chisholm Trail. She entered 12 primaries and earned 152 of the electoral delegates, which was 10% of the total. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. That's not bad. It's not bad. Despite an underfinanced campaign and contentiousness from the predominantly male Congressional Black Caucus. Oof. Yep. She was. So despite all that, she was able to get 10% of the vote. She retired from Congress in 1983. She served a long time. Yeah, that's a long time. It's like 20 years. And then she taught at Mount Holyoke College and co-founded the National Political Congress of Black Women. Love. She moved to Florida in 1991. Good. Yeah. Get, get some rays. Get out of here. Get some sun. At some point, I forget which president it was, but somebody was like, hey, do you want to be ambassador to this thing? And she's like, absolutely. Nah, I've not. done my work. I have I done enough. And then she died in 2005. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I know. So amazing. Yeah. Great. She's crazy. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors. Support for this podcast comes from The Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examine what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. 
Democracy Group podcasts are produced by nonprofits like Issue One and the German Marshall Fund, universities like James Madison University and Penn State University, and independent producers. Democracy Group podcasts take a step back from the partisan horse race to look at how the government works and how we can all be more civically engaged. Each podcast covers democracy from a different angle, whether that is through the lens of foreign policy, solutions of journalism or political science, and examines different issues from ending urban violence to uncovering corruption in Washington. Visit democracygroup.org to hear the latest content from member shows, subscribe to a bi-weekly newsletter, and gain access to thematic curated playlists covering everything from healthcare to impeachment to climate change. Again, that's www.democracygroup.org. Okay, my next one is a complete left turn, but I also just realized it is, again, Deborah Michaels from the National Women's History Museum. <laughs> so, Deborah, thank you. <laughs> um, I decided to talk about Sybil Ludington. Do you know Sybil? No. <gasps> Ardon, Ardon. I'm so excited. So, Sybil Ludington was born in New York in 1761. Ludington was the eldest of Henry and Abigail's 12 children. Poor Abigail. In addition, <laughs> in addition to working as a farmer, Ludington's father was a grits mill. I don't know what that is. Owner who served in the military for over 60 years, oh including God. during the French and Indian War. He was loyal to the British crown until 1773 when he switched sides to join the Patriots and the American Revolution. Yes. So the important thing to know is Sybil is compared to Paul Revere because she did a similar ride. But I will tell you about it right now. Love it. On April 26, 1777. So this is two years after Paul Revere's ride. Colonel Ludington, her father, received word from a rider that a nearby town of Danbury was under attack by British troops and needed help. At the time, Ludington's regiment had disbanded for planting season, and his men were miles apart at the respective farms. With the rider too tired to continue, so the rider who came to deliver this message, mm -hmm. too tired to continue, and Colonel Ludington focused on preparing for battle, young Sybil rose to the cause. Oh, my God. How old was she? 16. Oh, my God. I know. So she rode through the night, alerting the colonel's men of the danger and urging them to return to the fight. She rode all night through dark woods and in the rain, covering anywhere from 20 to 40 miles. There's a little bit of an estimate, but that's like the range, 20 to 40 miles. Wow. On, on horseback. horseback. <laughs> on horseback. And by the time she returned home, hundreds of soldiers were gathering to fight the British. Ludington's troops arrived too late to win the battle, though they did fight with the departing British soldiers. So after the war, so just to put this in perspective, Paul Revere, they say, rode for a, maybe an hour mm -hmm. tops and for like one to three miles. Right. Sybil, 20 miles. That's so far. 20 miles to do the exact same thing. And he was like a proper adult male. He was a full adult male. On a, on, and also, he didn't like the story with Paul Revere. And this isn't a knock, Paul Revere. Like, good for you. But I was, like, doing research on Paul Revere to commit, compare to Sybil. Yeah. And, like, one of the things they talk about was, like, there were other men with Paul Revere. There was, like, several men with Paul Revere. And yeah. they were kind of just, like, like trotting. You know? Like, like they, were, they were, like... <laughs> yeah. You know, um, the and then he ends up getting, he ends up, because it was from like Lexington to Concord, maybe that they were doing, I forget what it was. They're yeah. going to Concord. And they end up, Paul ends up getting stopped by British soldiers and can't go on. Like he does like one town and then he can't go on because the British soldiers stop him. Mm -hmm. So another dude ends up completing the ride, whose name I've already forgotten. And so like, it's like, it's not that it's not impressive. It's just like we have a 16 year old who's riding 20 to 40 miles in unknown wilderness right. <laughs> in the rain on, her own. on a horse that is not her own that she borrowed. It's just like, That's it's so funny. It's, and it's and like riding because right. it's happening now. She's like, I gotta get there. Right. I gotta get it's there. 17 having a shot. Like we, it's wow. going to take me 39 hours to get anywhere. So, um, yeah, 
but she's often not talked about, even though they did the exact, literally the exact same mission of, we have to alert that the quote, British are coming. Right. But one of us rode for 20 miles. One of us got caught. One of us got caught after he rode for maybe a after mile and then turned rode. over his duties yeah. to like his but friend. But he's the figure in American history. Okay. No. So Sybil, after the war, married in eight, 1784 at age 23. The couple had one son and lived in Catskill, New York. Oh. Ludington's hu- husband died of yellow fever in 1799. So sorry. Four years later, she bought a tavern and helped her son become a lawyer. When she sold the tavern, she earned a tidy profit. Three times what she was paid for the land and purchased a home for her son and his family, where she also resided. After her son died in 1838, Lunnington applied for a Revolutionary War pension since her husband served in the military. Her pension was denied, claiming insufficient proof of marriage. And at age 77, 77, Luddington died in poverty. I know. After all of that. Oh, my God. That was going so well. I know. I was so happy. After a 16-year-old war hero. Oh, and by the way, the other thing about Paul Revere. I hate us. I know. I hate you at us. But another thing about Paul Revere is all of the things that I was researching about him just comparing it. Like, they mentioned- Because we all we know like about the ride. Did he get a medal of something? I bet he no. He actually he had a bad military record. Like he was an average soldier. Like nobody. Like he did. There was no fame. There was nothing for him at all during his life. They were just like Paul. You kind of suck at this, actually. (laughs) Right. Like I don't know. Like I feel like if the founding fathers were to come back now, they'd be like Paul. Paul is the hero. Paul is the hero. Let me tell you about Paul. I mean, obviously, they don't care about Sybil because she's not a person, but, you know, yeah. (laughs) Two similar instances. She rode for 20 to 40 miles, age 16, unarmed. Right. Like, it's not like there were British troops. Just like all around. I know. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's Sybil. When you said that she then died in poverty, I like the floor fell out from under me. Like, I was so happy. I know. She did. She was honored with a stamp by the Postal Service in 1975. So. Oh, I'm sure she would have appreciated that more is, than the food she needed. They didn't have needed. stamps in 1777. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do, I'm going to take it. We're going to stay in the, like, the women who lived a long time ago. That's going to be the link for this one. Okay, great. Great. So I'm going to talk about Nellie Taylor Ross. Okay. Nellie Taylor Ross. I don't think I know Nellie. Okay, great. She was the first woman woman in the United States to serve as governor of a state and <gasps> the first woman to direct the U.S. Mint. Oh, my God. Yeah. What state? Wyoming. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wyoming. Okay. First woman in the United States to serve as governor of a state, which was Wyoming, and the first woman to direct the U.S. Mint. That's crazy. I love this. I love this. Keep yeah. going. So she was born on November 29th, 1876 in St. Louis, Missouri. Her mother's family, the Greens, owned a large plantation with 100 slaves Jeez. in northwest Missouri before the Civil War. So let's reckon with that. Yeah. Their mansion was burned down during the conflict. <laughs> the conflict. Karma, really. The, 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 yeah, the, let's the call Civil it the War. Full Civil War. The full, full, the full ass Civil War. And the family never really recovered. Well, sure. I feel like that's fine. Sure. When you're working off of the free labor of a hundred human beings. Yeah. That's, you don't that's recover. hard to make up for. Bumskis. So that was her mother's side of the family. <laughs> okay. So the father, so they have been living kind of off of. Nellie's family's money. Yeah. So the the plantation is in, it's gone. It's gone. So the father built a smaller house and then farmed as much of the land, of the land as he could. It had, they had fallen on hard times because by the end of the 1880s, there was a drought. Sure. So like, not only have they lost all of the free labor they had, there is now then a drought. Now there's no rain. <laughs> there's no rain. And also there was a grasshopper plague. <laughs> oh. That brought hard times to the farm and the okay, store. Okay, sure. I don't know how to farm. No, I feel like they would eat a lot of it. Oh, maybe the bugs that the eat bugs. the planes? I don't know. Yeah. I don't like know. Maybe they're, they're eating the bu- I don't know. Yeah. But so between the drought and the, the no free labor and the grasshoppers, the they lost it all. And then in 1889, when Nellie was 13, her mother died. Shame. Yeah. So eventually the father loses everything and they move to Oklahoma. Sure. I, I love that. Like we have to move to Oklahoma. We have to move like, to Oklahoma. Okay. We have no we have no other yeah. option. Yeah. So Nellie began teaching piano to students and gradually put together two more years of schooling for herself. So she's like, 
she's teaching piano. She's like, I want to go to school. She gets enough money together to go to school for two more years, Mm -hmm. which is enough schooling to get her job as a kindergarten teacher. Okay, okay. She taught first in an Italian neighborhood and then later in a Polish one, not learning, learning not only how to teach, but how to, but how like big organizations work. Great. And in this case, the Omaha public school system. Oh my God. Okay. Take it on. Take it on. So then fast forward like some years. In 1924, she was elected governor of Wyoming, succeeding her husband who had been governor. Okay. Love. Um, He was an incumbent Democrat. His name was William Bradford Ross. And he died just prior to his reelection. So she had married William Bradford Ross. He died. And then just before the election, the election and on the day of his funeral, the chairman of the state democratic committee knocked on her door on the afternoon and asked her to run for governor. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I bet she was like, I thought you'd never I ask. Thought you'd never ask. I do think that it's, it's not lost that like, I mean, it all has to do with name recognition, right? Oh, like sure. people, like names on the ballot, like it's a Ross. I'm voting for a Ross. Yeah. Like they, yeah, they won't know. It's uh, yeah. they won't know the difference. And we feel like you know, it's it's not like like they're not asking her to run for governor because they think she would be like good at the no, job. No, they're they like, just don't want the other. We don't want the other person it. to win it. Yeah. And you have the same last name, so can you just do it? And we'll like, you know, you you will be the puppet masters. Yeah. So they asked her. The election was a month away, so it was truly pressing. They needed her to say yes. Yeah. After narrowly losing to a Republican candidate for governor in 19... So she go- wins she that wins. election. Yeah. She goes on to, to be governor. After narrowly losing to a Republican candidate for governor in 1926, Ross was appointed vice chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Jeez, okay. Yeah. Like, get that girl vote. Get yeah. that women's vote. Yeah. So she does that job for a while. And then in 1933, FDR appoints her to lead the U.S. Mint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. During her 20-year 20 20-year 20 term, Very she long. was in the U.S. Mint for 20 years. That's crazy. The Mint introduced the Roosevelt Dime. Well, and, you know, good. Yep. The Jefferson Nickel. Yeah. And the Steel Penny. All of the things we know today. All the things we know and love today. The latter uh, was an emergency measure during World War II. <laughs> the, steel the Steel Penny, penny. was like, oh, we're in a crisis. <laughs> we're in a crisis. We need, we can't. Like honey, we, we know. <laughs> we need every cent. We need yeah. every cent. Yeah. Yeah. And she lived a really long time. Oh. Like I actually looked like I was like, this has to be incorrect. But she lived until December 19th, 1977. Jeez. Like she was 101 years old Hell when she yeah. died. Hell yeah. This woman saw Everything. a lot of shit. And that's a lot happened in Could that you one. you imagine like you War, go War, from like War, War II. II. Like the whole shebang. The whole lot of it. Like I just like from bread lines to like we've landed on the moon. Yeah. Insanity. Yeah. Insanity. Dang. Yeah. So that's okay. Nellie Taylor Ross. I love that. Yeah. Okay. My final one. And this was one I was telling you about before we started recording where I was like, I, I found the first three like pretty quickly. And I was like, yes, that feels great. And I really struggled to find the fourth one. And then it suddenly dawned on me who it should be. It's a complete departure of what I've been talking about before. I am going to tell you about Queen Lily Ukalani. Okay. The first and only queen of Hawaii. What? Before Hawaii was a state, and we'll talk about this, they had a monarchy basically figure as their head of Hawaii. How did I not know this? Oh, yeah. And so the only like actual royal residential palace that exists in the United States is in Honolulu. Get the fuck out. It is this palace. No. I have been. Oh, my God. So Queen Lily Ukalani, um, which I hope I'm saying right. I've listened to the name several times just to make sure I got it right. But this is her story. And this is from history.com. So born Lydia Kamakea, she became crown princess in 1877 after the death of her youngest brother made her the heir apparent to her elder brother, King Kalakua. I just think it's so maddening that Every woman we've talked about who has risen to power has done it At, because some because other man some has man not been able is like I mean nah. that's the whole thing that's the whole thing so yes so her younger brother died because you know obviously the males o- go over females in lines of succession right her younger brother dies and so it's literally just her older brother who is the current king and herself so she is the only option as far right. as succession goes so in 1887 10 years after the death of her youngest 
brother, an elite class of business owners, mainly white, can you believe, forced King Kalakua to sign the so-called, quote, bayonet constitution, which limited the power of the monarchy in Hawaii. Lilikualani opposed this constitution as well as the Reciprocity Treaty, by which Kalakua had granted commercial privileges to the United States, along with control over Pearl Harbor. This stance lost the future queen the support of foreign businessmen before she even took the throne. When Kalakua, her brother, died in early 1891, Liliuokalani succeeded him, becoming the first woman ever to rule Hawaii. Wow. As queen, she acted to implement a new constitution that that would restore the powers lost to the monarchy through the Bayonet Constitution. In January 1893, a group of American and European businessmen, with the support of the U.S. Minister John Stevens and a contingent of U.S. Marines, staged a coup to depose the queen. Liliuokalani surrendered with the hopes of appealing to President Grover Cleveland Ah. to reinstate her. Cleveland offered Liliuokalani reinstatement in return for her granting amnesty to all those who had been involved in the coup. She initially refused, but then acquiesced. In vain, however, as the provincial government formed after the coup led by Sanford Dole, as in, like, Dole fruit? Fruit, yes. Whoa. Denied her reinstatement. In July of 1894, the government proclaimed the Republic of Hawaii with Dole as its first president. Early in 1895, after loyalist Robert Wilcox led a failed insurrection aimed at restoring Liliuokalani to the throne, the queen was placed under house arrest and charged with treason. She agreed to sign a formal abdication in late January in exchange for the pardon of the supporters who had led the revolt. Wow. Literally amazing. But this is also a fun fact about that. Later, so after this, she tried to claim that the abdication was invalid as she had signed her married name rather than her royal one. So she's trying to be like, different signatures. And I'm like, she's trying. Yeah. She's 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 trying to marble and move the situation. Yeah. Yeah. With no children of her own, Liliuokalani had designated her niece Kailulani, Kailulani as heir, and in 1896, the two women traveled to Washington together to try to convince Grover Cleveland oh my God. to restore the Hawaiian monarchy without success. As leader of the Stand Firm movement, Liliuokalani fought steadfastly against the U.S. annexation of Hawaii. Though Cleveland was sympathetic, his successor, William McKinley, was not. And his government annexed Hawaii in July of 1898. Kaiulani, the queen's niece, in poor health, died in 1899 at the age of 24. Queen Liliuokalani withdrew from public life and lived until 1917, where she suffered a stroke and died at the age of 79. Oh. I know. I know. I had like two in a row that were like, ugh. Yep. But like so many things to unpack here. Number one, we had a queen. Yep. Number two, she was amazing. Number three, like this whole thing, like Hawaii, the way Hawaii was annexed was so like, it's so tumultuous. It's so tumultuous and it's so like negating of, you know, the native people that were living there. And it's yeah. just like, it's classic. It's like purely colonial conquering, you know, where you have the but white. But she also asked for, like she went, like she was working with them. She was, she was like yeah. level with me. Like, yeah. you know, Grover, yeah. you know that this is my throne. Right. That I have pure, like, like I, yeah. I'm not just somebody. Yeah. I am the sister of the, past queen or the past king yeah and this is how it works yeah but like it's just we should do a whole episode on that i know the annexation of hawaii yeah <gasps> would love to yeah. would love to but Great. yeah but like also it's like just continuing to try to basically save hawaii yeah. from annexation and save hawaii from from what eventually happened to it which was being you know engulfed by the united states and yep. having their way of life and their way of living, you know, just taken away and replaced by America and American ideals and the American system of government. And, um, you know, it's, it's really like, yeah, Hawaii's great. You know, like it's one of those things where it's like, 
it's great, but it's also like such a bummer. Yeah. I hate that we do this. You yeah. Know? It wasn't we hers. We staged a coup and deposed a monarch. Yep. Which when other countries do it, we raise arms against it. I know. <laughs> I know. But Hawaii is so small. Yep. You know, they yeah. didn't have, they didn't, you know, this is, this is in the, almost at the turn of the century. Like, yeah. They don't, they don't have this stuff. They don't have the no. materials to fight against the, the United no. States. And what's so funny is like the dull, that's like crazy. Huge. There's this huge dull plantation in Hawaii, in Honolulu. That's like, you know, it's like mazes and it's fun. And it's like the biggest producer of dull products. Yeah. Obviously it's Hawaii. And so to just think that like, oh, the legacy of this is that you literally deposed the native queen from her throne, took over and became president yourself. Right. Shitty. Shitty. But you know Shitty. what? I salute to a queen, our only queen of America that has been in American history. Like, yeah, she was the queen. She was the queen. The first and only queen of Hawaii. I want to go to that castle. It's it's great. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a it's not like, you know, it's not like Windsor, obviously, but right, it's right, like right. it's a palace and there's and there's history. And, and so many people don't know this about Hawaii you yeah. know you just no, think that, I had like, no idea that there was a monarch and a queen and she got deposed and this was in you know the turn of the century and she was pleading to Grover Cleveland of all people right being like please don't depose me from my, my throne throne my rightful inherited throne right that I have a claim to that you know I have a claim to like he knew he had a claim to it otherwise he wouldn't be like negotiating with her right 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 you know yep also, she's like abdicating so her supporters aren't, you know, probably like pr imprisoned for yeah. life. Yeah. And then she's also trying to be fucking sneaky AF and signing her, you know, which honestly in the court of law today. Yep. You know, she might have. She might have gone away with it. It might have been invalid. Yep. You know, I don't know. So that's my final one. Yep. Queen. Queen of Hawaii. That's such a good one. Thank you. I'm going to end with, with on somebody who is alive. <gasps> okay okay and is currently like a serving member of the senate but i feel like okay. it's a happy one okay we love happy it's a happy one and oh my god mm -hmm. i feel like she's not like she's not like a forgotten about senator she just doesn't draw attention to herself we're doing right now and i feel like she deserves more attention than she gets then she's gonna get it okay so we're gonna talk about tammy baldwin oh oh yeah yeah yes tammy mm -hmm. she's so cool she's so cool oh my god yes yeah. yes yes love it so tammy baldwin is a is currently a serving senator from the great state of wisconsin love she is the first openly gay because statistically let's be honest yeah 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 um yeah. the first openly gay u.s senator in america and she broke boundaries when she was the first woman to be elected to congress from wisconsin like the first woman ever, ever. to be elected to congress yeah. from wisconsin but winning a seat in the house of representatives in 1998 her first election win uh, was when she was appointed to the dane county board of supervisors on which she served from 1986 to 1994 and then after that she did three terms in the wisconsin assembly in the 90s and then became the first openly gay non-incumbent person elected to Congress in 1998. Ugh. She held uh, that position in the House for seven terms before being elected to the Senate. Though she received, this is like the thing that I, these next two points are like my favorite things. Yeah. So though she received donations from the Gay and Lesbian Victory Fund, her sexuality was largely a non-issue during her campaign. Sure. So she told CNN, quote, she didn't, that she didn't run to make history, but rather to make a difference. Yeah. This is from uh, heavy.com, which is an article this is all from an article written by Hallie Goldman. So why she acknowledges that her win helps create a Senate that is, quote, more reflective of the American people. Senator Baldwin says that the majority of voters place more importance on her positions on issues that affect them than her sexual orientation. And I just feel like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like equality to me is like, it doesn't, it's not an issue. Yeah. Like it, nothing gets, to, like equality is when everybody's baseline, everybody's normal is normal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's equality. Yeah, got a long way to go, but that's, I, that's that's the goal. That's the goal. You'll love this. Okay. She led the charge to impeach Dick Cheney. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Dammy. Oh my god. It's <laughs> like something for me, something for you. Oh, God, what a yummy nugget. I know, right? Ugh. She was among the 133 members of the House to vote against the invasion of Iraq. She uh -huh. also co-sponsored the bill to impeach Dick Cheney for alleged crimes, including the deception, including, quote, the deceptive actions leading up to the Ira Iraq war. Yeah, she knew then. Yeah. When discussing her views on foreign policy during her campaign uh, in 2015, when she was, I think, being reelected in 2016, she said, quote, we cannot make mistakes 
of the previous administration of going to war without a definition of victory, of success, and of achieving our goals, and we can't go without an exit strategy, close quote. Yeah. 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 She's amazing. She's amazing. That's such a good one. That's a great one to end on. I know. Like, I do have, do you want to share our like honorable, like our, our list? Cause didn't you, we both had a list of people like just in case we should have the same should. one. Yes. Mine are very like, there's a, there's a great website that's like lists like firsts yeah. in America yeah. that are women. And so my, you yes. want to go back and forth. Yeah. So I'll go first. So one that I found was Maude Stevens Wagner, which Ooh. is the first, mo- first known female tattoo artist in the United States Ooh. in 1907. Ooh, yeah. that's good. Yeah. That's really good. I like that. Yeah. Let's go Frances Perkins. <gasps> oh my God. Yes. Yes. The first woman, woman ever to serve in a presidential cabinet. She served as the secretary of labor until 1945. She was appointed in 1933. So she served from 1933 to 1945 under FDR. Love that. Mm-hmm. Another one I had was Claudette Calvin, who mm. was the first black woman to refuse to give up her seat on the bus. So her refusal happened about a couple months before Rosa Parks. Yes. Uh <clears throat> just giving space for her also shout out to rosa shout out to rosa in 1923 soledad chacon so not saying that right but was a democrat was elected secretary of state in new mexico she was the first latina and first woman of color to hold a statewide office to hold elected statewide office love executive office sorry the first latina and first woman of color to hold a statewide elected executive office Amazing. I had a Sally Ride, the first woman in space. Yes. Yes, (laughs) Sally Ride. Space is involved. Yes, Sally Ride. I love this one. Partly because of the name, but that's not really why I love it. Uh, In 1986, Wilma Mankiller was the first woman to serve as the chief of the Cherokee Nation. Nice. Yeah, Yeah, right? Yeah, woman Mankiller. Love it. Yep. Um, another one I had was Marsha P. Johnson, uh, which is she was a LGBTQ and trans activist. She was credited mm. with throwing the first brick at the Stonewall riots. And she's considered <gasps> like sort of like the the mother oh, of the so modern good. trans rights movement. Nice. Yeah. Last, not the least at all. Yes. Belva Lockwood Ooh. was the first woman admitted to practice law before the U.S. Supreme Court and ran for president on the Equal Rights, Equal Rights Party ticket, which she did twice. And the second time was in 1888. I love it. Oh my gosh. That was so fun. That was really fun. That was amazing. I really love that. Guys, happy International Women's Month, year, universe, whatever. Um, Obviously, we love you so, so much. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. You can rate us. You can review us. You can subscribe to us. We love you so, so much. We will see you next Wednesday. Goodbye.